Well, thank you, Alex. Good to be with you guys this morning. If you have children and you'd like them to be in Sunday school right now, they can be dismissed right to the back into the foyer, up to, through sixth grade if you'd like them to be down there, or you can keep them with you. For the rest of you, as you know, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Will you do that? hope that's not the first time you've been in the Word today, because if it is, you're starving this morning, and that's not how the Lord would have you know His Word. It's not enough just to check in weekly with the Word of God and walk out any more than it would be normal for you to take one meal in a week. So let me encourage you to be in the Word each day. Yeah, that'd be the Lord's plan for you. You can hold up that holy standard before your eyes. You can understand what it means to walk with Him. You can have the spiritual blessings that come from and understanding what He wants you to do and then conforming to that. And so that's where the joy is. That's where the richness is. God has one will. He makes it known in His Word. You can know what that is by being in it. God's plan for a healthy church is our continued study through these two books of Corinthians. Spiritual warfare, as we got to chapter 10, is our topic after 10 all the way through chapter 13. Walking the hard road is our specific title today. And we're coming really to back into this passage. We've been in it for a couple of weeks, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 and following. So open there, if you would, in your copy of God's Word. We're approaching the end of this chapter where we've been able to to see Paul having to boast, to show that he is a true apostle and defend the church from false teaching. If you've been with us, you know this, and, and you would assume that if a man was going to show his superiority as an apostle, as a teacher, that he might start out by talking about his education, about his experience, about his achievements and his accomplishments and all of that. And we looked at that last week and what that could have looked like if we, Paul didn't embellish at all and just wanted to talk about all that he's done. It could have been pretty impressive. But he doesn't do any of that, and as you have read part of this, you know that. He goes right to the most dominant feature of his life as an apostle, which was what? Suffering. The difficult road, the hard road that he had to walk. And according to Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 10, which we saw last week, and we looked at the difficulty in suffering and some of the evidence then that he is uh, the minister that God has intended for him to be and that he's a true apostle because Jesus talked about that and prophesied the suffering and the beatings and all that would occur and that the Lord would speak directly through them to give them revelation for the church. And just in general, uh, for everyone who has an effective ministry, we would expect difficulty to follow along. We ended that with that last week. Jesus said this according to John 16, 33. These things I've spoken to you so that you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, but take care, take courage. I've overcome the world. Uh, you remind the world of Jesus. That's why you're going to have tribulation. You represent him to a greater or lesser extent as you walk closely with the word as a believer and you have peace within, of course, and he gives that peace to you, but it will come with the territory that you're going to have tribulation in the world. Second Timothy 3, Paul's talking to his son in the faith. He says, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, verse 11, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. We looked at some of those last time. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord rescued me. And then he says this, and really broadens out that expectation that uh, you're going to have difficult times, and that should be expected. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Why? Well, because uh, they are representative of the light invading a dark world. Uh, the world is a fallen place. The world is wicked and sinful. This world is unbelieving. The world is cursed. The world lies in the lap of the evil one. We saw earlier in chapter 10 that you're supposed to take the truth 
and wield that truth and throw down those high towers and those high places that are raised up against the knowledge of Christ. And so this is a process by which you, as you're sanctified, begin to wield the word of God more surely, understand what it says, what it means by what it says, and how that applies to you. And as you wield that truth, the more you do that effectively, the more you should expect that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So this is the Satan's temporary domain. It's a provisional kingdom, if you will. It's his chaos, and he has authority in the short term. And if someone comes along then and proclaims the gospel of Jesus, bringing the light to bear on a fallen world, then uh, using the truth, if you will, as we said, to throw down every high tower raised up against the knowledge of God, we should expect that this kind of ministry then would be marked with some hardship, some persecution, some suffering. And the greater the impact of the ministry, of course, then the greater the consequent retaliation from the kingdom of darkness. And that just makes sense, doesn't it? And we see that certainly still today. And when we look at Paul in the Greek and Roman and Jewish societies so close to the crucifixion of Christ, uh, with so much hostility and so much resistance uh, to, and, and death working you know, backwards after Christ's raised and all of those kinds of things going on, and so much challenge to the darkness and the status quo that had been established all since creation, then... Um, you know, Satan can read the scriptures. He, he knows what's going to happen. He doesn't know anything beforehand, but he certainly knows what's going to happen. Christ has risen from the grave, and, and that resistance is there. And so there is a, a fierce resistance from darkness against the kingdom of light. And so we see that. We don't see that so much here in our own country, but we do see that around the world, certainly. And so it's not a surprise to any of us. And so this is why Paul brought all of this up. So the more... Uh, suffering, the more Paul's credentials become clear. If Jesus said that the true apostles would suffer certain fate, and Paul is, uh, this is happening to him, he has fulfilled the marks of apostleship. And we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. There's only a, a very small set of people that could have qualified to be an apostle. And then inside that set, a subset of actual apostles, nobody else qualifies for that. And there's no way anyone today could qualify. But even in Paul's time and early in the church, we see there were many false teachers, many false apostles claiming to be uh, a certain way, and they were not. And so Paul then brings this up. He doesn't bring up all his credentials in a way that would make him look fantastic from the world's perspective. He just brings up these things that he suffered. And so he brings it up in the false teachers with all their masquerade. They can't possibly hope to compete with all of that. And so that's why Paul's doing what he's doing. And so that catches you up. You've not been with us. The whole discussion here is insane, really, as as. How is it that a man with the reputation of the Apostle Paul, someone who uh, has that character, a man who spent so long, so many months in the Corinthian church, who led so many of them to Christ uh, personally from idols and away from vain and hopeless way of life, they knew him very well. They, they certainly knew his teaching very well. They, they knew his character very well. They knew how, uh, his pattern of life. They understood how powerful his his uh, letters were, how effective his church planting had been. They certainly could see all of that. Word had spread from church to church and place to place about the man. It wasn't as if he was a mystery to them. So the question is, how, how does he get in a position where he has to defend himself against the church that he planted? And, but here comes along the false teachers, and they were early in the church right away, who told some lies about Paul, and, and these people who knew better believed them. And why is it that people do that? Well, it's because of the subtleties of Satan's deception. Satan and those who are taken captive by him to do his will are, are wily and cunning and crafty and subtle, and that's what's going on in the church, still goes on today. Uh, pastors around the country can spend years and years teaching and ministering and living their life out in front of people and really no mystery about any of that kind of thing. And, and, and everything's an open book and, and everything's clearly established and known, 
and the character of his life is there. But someone can come along subtly and deceptively and spread lies, and people buy them, and they change their viewpoint. It still happens now, and the pastor can find himself in this amazing position where he's having to try to defend himself in a conversation against an accusation made against him if measured by the years of ministry and life that was visible is nothing but absurd. But that's precisely the position Paul's in. It happens over and over again in churches. And that's what, uh, what Paul is saying, though, you know, the whole beginning, he says the whole thing is insane. Why am I even doing this? It's just foolishness, right? He has to defend himself, and, and why am, is this even being discussed? It's not as if you don't have enough information about me. And, and to even suggest on top of that uh, insanity that these people are servants of Christ is another kind of insanity. But for the sake of argument, I'll ask the question, are they servants of Christ? And he says, I what? More so. And we saw that last time. And, and, and there he launches into what we looked at, and, and their claim to be servants of Christ and apostles really unravels as he begins to get into his support for his apostleship. He says, I'm far more servant of Christ than they are. And how does he prove that? Now look at verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11. Look right here in your copy of God's Word. He says, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten time without number, often danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. How's he proved that he is who he says he is and that he's superior to those who are false teachers? Well, he proves it with his suffering. And we saw, saw last time this isn't an exhaustive list, and, and the book of Acts doesn't have all these events either. They overlap one another. Neither of them contradicts the other. And these things happen, and this is the remarkable part, fairly early in his ministry, by the time of this writing, and there's still a little bit of Paul's life left. So we know that's not even taking in everything that is going to happen to him. More is going to happen later, and Acts really indicates some of those things, and you can read ahead and see that. And, and, and Paul, a Jew, finds himself in good company, certainly as it relates to Jesus' prophecy and his promise to his true disciples. But if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll remember you know, what the Jewish leaders did to true apostles and true prophets. Uh, what did they do to Jeremiah? Do you remember? And what did they do to the other prophets? I mean, they tried to silence them. They threw them in pits. Uh, what did they do to Isaiah? Well, Manasseh reportedly sawed him in two. So there's this apocryphal book called The Lives of the Prophets, which if you ever decided to look that up, it gives a history of where they were from, where they lived, and how they died, and uh, more than one in three were murdered. So Paul's right in good company, isn't he? He finds himself exactly where true prophets have always been and true uh, spokespeople of the Lord. So is it anything new? It's the same old battle those who spoke the truth of God against the kingdom of lies and darkness were the recipients of persecution. I'd like you to turn, if you would, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, just go verse by verse, comparing Scripture with Scripture. Turn to Matthew 21. We're going to be here just for a few minutes, but I want you to see this. Jesus talks about this. So it's not a surprise then to his apostles what happens. It shouldn't be surprised later as, of course, this expands out into the church age. But Matthew 21, look there. We'll be there in chapter 21, 22, and 23, just taking some samples to help us just shore up all this understanding. But in verse 33 of Matthew 21, Jesus is teaching a parable. It's an earthly example of a heavenly principle. And he says this, Listen to another par a parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went away on a journey. Verse 34, When the harvest time approached, 
He sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. See where we are, verse 35. The vine growers took his slaves, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Verse 36, again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Verse 37, but afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Verse 38, but when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. Verse 39, they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Verse 44, verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? Verse 41, they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. These are the Jewish leaders. I mean, he's talking about these guys. Of course, they give the correct answer because they're very much about what they perceive to be justice. But obviously, the vineyard is God's vineyard, meaning the nation of Israel and the people of Israel, and, and later, of course, more generally, the work of the kingdom because we see it expand out. Those who've been given the responsibility to work that vineyard on behalf of God were the Jewish leaders. And the servants that are sent back to check on the crop are the prophets. They're the ones that the Lord sends to make sure his people are doing what they're supposed to do. And the whole picture of the parable is that the Jewish leaders have been massacring the prophets. That's what Jesus says, because the slaves are the ones that come and make sure that the vineyard is being managed correctly and to collect what he's supposed to collect. And, and the worst part is, the one who owned the vineyard sent his son, and what did they do to him? Well, they killed him. And Jesus is saying they killed the prophets, and they're going to kill the son as well. So he's giving a precursor of where his life is going to go. And, of course, he's speaking about him. Now, look at Matthew 22. Just go forward, if you would, to the next chapter. And look at verse 1, if you will. We want to make sure they got this. Three different times he's going to say it. He's going to make sure they understand their own history well because they have a way of revising all of that and imagining themselves in this position of superiority against all the other nations and that they've done what they were supposed to do, but that wasn't the case. Look at verse 1 of chapter 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Verse 3, And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Verse 4, Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who've been invited, Behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Verse 5, But they paid no attention and went their way, one to, to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest... Market seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. So he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited. That's Israel again. And uh, he sends the prophets to them to come and embrace his son. And what do they do? Down to verse 6, they seized his slaves, mistreat them, and killed him. Of course, expands on out and more are invited. And that's how we got in. Now look at, if you would, and this is the last illustration of this. Look at Matthew 23, verse 34. Will you do that? Same thing again, Matthew 23, verse 34. He just directly uh, correlates these, uh, these parables. Therefore, behold, verse 34, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. 
Now, this is very similar to what we saw in Matthew 10 when Jesus actually tells his apostles, this is exactly what's going to happen to you. But here he's bringing that accusation against those who will perpetrate it. And then verse 37, skip down there. There's two verses down. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, mark it, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. And we saw that a couple of weeks ago. The Jewish leaders were always killing the wrong people, weren't they? They were always stoning the wrong people, striking the wrong people, whipping the wrong people. And so he just calls out in a very mournful way, who kill the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. So Paul's life isn't anything new, is it? He just continues in very good company, if you will. The prophets wound up, most of them being martyrs. The apostles wound up being martyrs. And the world is still killing those who speak the truth and refute the culture with the gospel. So it goes with the territory. And we noted that the writings of 2 Corinthians, Paul's been in the ministry about 22 years. And so he spent some 22 years in the ministry. And just with what we know uh, about Paul from Acts, which isn't everything that happened to him, every other year, at the least, Paul had an experience of suffering that most people never experience. But every other year for Paul, on the average. And that's just this point in his ministry. He still has many years to live, so there's much more coming, and Acts talks about it. But in all of that, Paul showed no evidence of being physical wreck or suffering from, from anxiety attacks or, or PTSD or anything like that. You know, he, and that really speaks volumes about, about Paul's spiritual and emotional and his physical uh, resilience. No matter what came along, whatever abuse was hurled at him, he just wanted to serve his master. In Romans chapter 5, verse 3, he says this. He says, we also exalt in our tribulations. And we know that tribulation is a pressing pressure. It's the same kind of idea when you squeeze grapes or squeeze olives for the oil. That's the idea. We, we exalt in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And the idea is he just refused to give up. He was determined to serve his master. And through all of that, his hope grew. Hope in what? Hope in the resurrection? Hope in a new body? Hope in being delivered from all of this? Because every time you're in difficult times, you're hoping more for the, the resurrection, aren't you? Every time you realize your body's breaking down, you're hoping more for a new one. When you're young, you hope less for it. You're looking forward to it, no doubt, as a believer. But as you get older, you start looking more and more forward to it. And as more and more of your friends go on to glory, you're looking forward to catching up with them. So that's not unusual. His hope grew. He showed his proven character, which came from his perseverance through his hard times. He realized this is part and parcel of the job God had given him to do. And he wasn't any different from what those who had come before who were true. Now look back at our passage, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-six. Will you do that? So Paul says this in verse 26, he says, I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Verse 27, I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often out food and cold and exposure. Now, these verses ensure that were Paul alive today, he would be solicited by every evangelical publisher on the face of the planet for an all-time bestseller, right? But just recount your journey to us, Paul. I mean, that, this is going to sell. We're going to put this out there with a catchy title and a catchy cover, and this is going to be amazing. It would certainly be along those same lines if you've not read it, the story of Martin and Gracia Burnham in the book In the Presence of My Enemies. As a missionary couple you may be aware of, 
who were captured and held hostage in the Philippine jungle in 2001 by Islamic terrorists tied with Osama bin Laden. And they spent a year in captivity and they were finally violently rescued and which resulted in Martin's death. He was actually killed accidentally with friendly fire. And there are a lot of other books like that, and I have many on my shelves if you want to borrow them, that tell the story of suffering and danger and death, and rightfully so. And Paul would have been besieged with offers, no question, if, if just half of those things, and they want to talk about half the things that went on in Paul's life. Now let's keep reading. Apart from such eternal, external things, look at verse 28. There is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I'll boast of what pertains to my weaknesses. Verse 31, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Verse 32, in Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hand. And when you read all of that, of course, we mentioned that it just seems like this is a guy who really needs to get his life in order, right? This is a guy who hasn't read My Best Life Now by Joel Olstein, because obviously he's doing something wrong if everything's completely messed up. But we understand, really, as we align ourselves correctly with what the Word of God says, it just kind of flies in the face of all the prosperity gospel. It's, it's very embarrassing, in fact. Uh, if the best kingdom is now, then none of the guys that we would say we need to emulate have ever found that, have we? Have they? But the point here is that, that the ministry... His ministry really has at all times been perilous, and there's really been no relief in his ministry. The Lord told Ananias, we saw in, in Acts 9.16, that Paul, I will show Paul how much he must suffer uh, for my name's sake. He's going to suffer many things. And of course, we've seen that that has come to pass as we read these passages. Look at verse 26. He says, I've been on frequent journeys. Let's look, break a few of them down. I think they'll be interesting to you. And again, this is, um, normally we have notes, and, and uh, there's a number of doctrinal points that we want to point out. As I told you before, this, this section really uh, takes us through some experiences. So we're just going to look at them. This is Paul's life. We don't get the opportunity to see a lot of these things except right here. So uh, just sit back and enjoy this, and uh, there'll be some introspective things to think about as we get to the end. But Paul says, I've been on frequent journeys, and he's always been on the move. He was on the move before he was redeemed. He's on the move now, both by land and sea. And, and uh, before or after salvation, that movement hasn't changed at all. And I think that all of us have traveled enough, even in modern times, to know all the fatigue that's entailed in constantly traveling. Paul would regularly trek overland. If you look at his missionary journeys and just kind of trace where he says he from and to, uh, on his third missionary journey from Antioch to Ephesus, that's a trek of over 500 miles on land, which he walked the entire way. And that's just part of his third missionary journey. So we're not even, we're just taking a very small sampling. So difficult, no doubt. And then it says, in dangers from rivers. Uh, there's much written about the highways in the ancient world and how, how filled they were with the carnage that was wrought upon people, of course, from just difficult times. Uh, he had to ford unbridged, swollen rivers. Bridges were few, floods were frequent. That pretty much sums it up. If you've ever backpacked and you've had to cross anything that's up to your thigh or above, you know how difficult that is. Uh, my buddies and I used to trek in a place called the Black River Wilderness Area in Arizona. And, of course, we were going to camp there. We weren't going on through. We would camp, oh, hike in about 13 miles. But we would think it was really funny, especially if the river was high, watching our buddy cross and then him lose it and fall into the water and sink the bags wet. And we know the next five hours he's going to be spreading everything in his backpack out to try to dry it out. But Paul, he's, he's trying to move through. He's going on a 400-mile journey, and it's easy to lose all your stuff. 
mean, if you're, if you're in a swift river and you're trying to cross, there's no way to get across. Of course, he says he's in danger from rivers. He was in danger of the threat of drowning, no question. And if not drowning, certainly losing everything you were carrying, even if you managed to escape yourself. And then he says this, dangers from robbers. He says there's much written, uh, you know, in, 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 in the ancient world about how, how much difficulty brigands and, and highwaymen, as they were called, robbers, imposed on people. And I suppose there are areas where that hasn't changed too much. If you were going to trek through Afghanistan or vast sections of Africa like Mali or other places, it would certainly be the same, I would think. Uh, it was certainly that way out west in the 1800s. And, and Paul isn't the only one to suffer like this. In fact, it's a fairly common thing as the parable of the Good Samaritan, right, tells us in Luke chapter 10, verse 30, and that journey was only 16 miles. So in a 16-mile journey, they were already, already uh, pulled over by highwaymen and, and beaten and left for dead and robbed. But on just Paul's first ministry journey in, from uh, Acts 13, it says he traveled from Perga to Antioch of Pisidia. That's 158 miles now on modern highways that first part of his journey. And of course, that's not the direction Paul would have traveled. And that would have required him to go through the Tarsus Mountains, very rough, very rugged, very famous for being infested with criminal opportunists and highwaymen because there's lots of places they could hide. Mountains were like that. And so in order to make that journey, he would have had to cross two very dangerous and very flood-prone rivers all while watching out for robbers. And he says, danger from my countrymen, of course, meaning Jews, as we've seen over and over again, the Jews frequently sought his life everywhere. Every town he went to, he started preaching in the synagogue. Some of the Jews would believe and, and receive Jesus as Messiah. And, but the vast majority of them reacted with hostility, typically, and then fury, and then sought out his life. And we see that in Acts 9, and Acts 13, and Acts 14, and 17, and 18, and 20, and Acts 21. And he refers there in all of those places to the plotting of the Jews to kill him. And then in Acts chapter 23, verse 12, it says... The Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who formed this plot. If you remember that plot, he'd been taken, and he was being held in the barracks as a Roman so he could be questioned. And then a relative had heard this plot and had come and informed the commander of the barracks and said, listen, there's a bunch of Jews out there. They're going to kill Paul, and they're not going to eat or drink until they do. So the commander took Paul with 200 horsemen and transported him away from there in the middle of the night to keep him from being killed. So it was serious jeopardy of life all the time. And he says this, in dangers from Gentiles. And of course, not as widespread as the danger from the Jews, but in the town of Philippi, of course, in Acts 16, he was thrown into a Philippian jail. We saw that last time where he received a beating with rods and was roughly treated, even though he's a Roman and should have been exempt from all of that. Uh, we saw, you know, there are plenty of uh, unscrupulous rulers who don't care about the church or about Christianity or about Christians back then and still today. So widespread danger from the Gentiles and sometimes a riot of Gentiles. A mob would start because Paul would lead someone to faith who perhaps was a fortune teller or he would lead some uh, person to faith and then it would spread and then the silversmiths got mad at him because they weren't making idols anymore and, and lost all their money and all those kinds of things and sometimes the riots of the gentiles were secretly started by the jews as we see in Acts 19 so danger from gentiles was a significant danger for paul danger it says in the city and this is a relentless danger in the city every time paul would come in uh, you know it's in his mind every place he went there was a mob scene uh, responding with some kind of violence we uh, we are familiar with that aren't we 
criminals and violence, and, and you know, we can see that today, can't we? Even leading up into COVID in 2020, Antifa, so-called, and all of that kind of stuff, we, we see how dangerous that can be in cities. Well, that was Paul's experience constantly. And that's on top of criminals and shysters which were dwelling in this city constantly waiting to rip somebody off, steal something. So we understand that, you know, if you if you're going through Miami or Detroit or Chicago, you want to be packing if you're trekking through those inner cities, right? If you're walking through there, you want to have concealed. And he nearly lost his life in Ephesus. He nearly lost his life in Jerusalem, Philippi, Iconium, Lystra, where he was stoned nearly to death. Remember, we looked at that last time. Thessalonica. It could have happened to Berea. He got out just in time. It was it nearly happened in Damascus, and, and these are Jews following him around and stirring up trouble, even though he's doing these great works and trying to make sure that they can kill him. He was worried that it was going to happen at Corinth, if you remember, and then the Lord actually appeared to him in a dream and said, Paul, don't worry, I have many people in the city, no one's going to harm you. Why? Why was he worried? Well, perhaps because that was his normal circumstance. He goes into a city, typically it doesn't take very long, and there's a big plot to kill him. So the cities were dangerous for places for Paul. Then dangers, it says, in the wilderness. Let's look there. And, of course, this is whatever vast expanses of land and that's empty of people and shelter could throw at him. Just a general term for being in the wilderness, far away. Uh, there would be dangers of exposure, of course. I'm going to mention that in just a minute. The cold, the rain, the snow, the heat, whatever else might be, have been there from the standpoint of natural elements, crossing a freezing river and no place to dry out. It's just not exposure to the elements, though, in the weather and what those extremes could do to your body, but also wild animals that inhabited those mountains uh, would have been a threat to him, bears and lions, and perhaps even bigger animals could have still been around, things like that. So Paul says the wilderness is a dangerous place. And, and when we see the phrase in the wilderness, that could be indicating that he didn't stay on well-traveled roads as often as perhaps he could have, and the reason for that is obvious. If you're not staying on well-traveled roads, you're also going to avoid robbers and brigands, right? If you're going a different route, takes you away from the well-traveled route you probably also miss out on the danger there so some of that exposure may be as a result of that and of course as he's talking about this is is this what happens with false teachers no are they exposing themselves to wilderness and and are they, and, and cold and and hunger and all no see so all their standing of they have you know the standard that they put together for themselves and they met the standard and now they're they're superior to paul this is all unraveling see underneath them they all, everybody knows who they're talking about, and now Paul's saying these are things that are a mark of the true apostle, and so as he, every time he goes through one of these, it's just like that thread that just keeps pulling out of the cloth. And then he says this, dangers on the sea, and we looked at that last time, so we won't look at it at, at length again, but he's talking about shipwrecks, and, and we know from Acts 27 that another dangerous journey was coming, so he'd already... He's, written the, he's writing this letter, and this one hasn't even happened yet. And we saw last time that one out of three voyages Paul took ended up with him in the water in shipwreck. So that's not a really great, uh, not a really great odds for him. But um, he has a lot of calm assurance. And so he gets to this next voyage, which hasn't even happened at the point of this writing. And they're in the middle of a violent storm. And it's lasted 14 days. This kind of explains a lot of Paul's calm. It's a lesson I've taught on this before. It's a fantastic place to, to teach. Paul says this, yet I now urge you to keep up your courage. So they've been driven in the Adriatic Sea for 14 days. Nobody's eating anything, of course, because a ship is heaving up and down. If you've ever been on a ship like that, you know that that's the last thing you're thinking about is trying to eat something. But Paul says, I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And then he says, for this very night, an angel of the, of, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me. Isn't that a great way to, to phrase it? An angel of the God to whom I belong. That's just, that is such a great way to, to phrase that. And whom I serve. So there's this 
possessiveness from God to you to him and then an obedience from him towards the Lord. I just love how they how that's expressed. Saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Because you have an appointment in Rome with Caesar, the angel said, the Lord has granted everybody with you to be saved. And that's when you're glad Paul's on board, right? Things are going badly, but this is pretty good. Because if God has an appointment for Paul, and everybody else is there with him, he says, I'm going to grant you everybody to go. Therefore, he says, keep up your courage. For I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I've been told. So Paul had been through all this, and then he comes to this place in Acts 27. Is he a little concerned about how the outcome will be? He's not, is he? Because he knows that God can raise the dead, and he's under the threat of death every day. And he says, we despaired even of life but we had hope that God raises the dead. What does that mean? It just means if God's not done with us and somebody takes our life, he could easily raise us. So that was Paul's, that was Paul's outlook. And then he'd been through all these kinds of things. So he's just on another ship, and he knows one out of three is going to end up on the bottom anyway. And so this is not a surprise. But then he's wondering if he's going to get to go to Caesar and stand before Caesar, and the Lord comes and assures him, yes, you will. And I'm going to give you everybody with you. And had any of the men known Paul well enough, they would have heeded his instruction sooner because Paul had been delivered many times from the water and he wasn't flustered and he wasn't afraid. And then he mentions this, dangers among, he says, false brethren. And that's pretty sad, isn't it? If you think about that, as people pretending to be believers, that's precisely what's happening in Corinth, of course. Verse 13 makes that clear, that they pretend to be, it's a masquerade of servants of righteousness and they're everywhere, and they're still around, of course. That's how William Tyndall and other reformers were betrayed by people who pretended to be reformers, pretended to be um, in line with what was being taught. It's how churches are betrayed in China to the great harm of true believers constantly happening there. Uh, evangelical churches in Muslim-majority countries are constantly on the watch for these types of false believers to make sure they don't get in and betray everyone. Uh, Paul told the church in Galatia that he had to go up to Jerusalem and fix the problem. And listen to what he says in Galatians 2.4. He says, because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. So the disciples had to deal with that, right? Right away in the church. So it shouldn't surprise us it still goes on. And, and there's hardly anything worse than a Judas kind of traitor, is there? I'm convinced that most of the trouble that occurs even in the modern church is caused by false believers. These are the people who come alongside you and they claim to be your brother or sister and later they do everything they can to destroy you. False believers are always sneaking around trying to undermine Paul. They're the backbiters. They're the, they're the uh, gossipers. And among them, of course, would be the false apostles at Corinth and the Judaizers who hounded every step Paul took to try to confuse the churches. And he constantly had to go and try to straighten out what was being said. And there were wolves in sheep's clothing. And, and they were the perverse men who would rise up and, and he talked about them in Acts 20 to the church. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, speaking of the same subject, he says this, Beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers. So he doesn't have much to say that's good about people who are pretending to be believers. He calls them dogs, evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. There it is again, not truly people who are truly born again and have circumcised hearts. 
for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put, mark it, no confidence in the flesh. Because false believers, false teachers are always, are always having some confidence in themselves, aren't they? They're always their own best friend. They're always, you know, you need to hear what I have to say kind of thing. You know, very confident in what they can do. Paul says, I put no confidence in the flesh. And he says, verse 18, for many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Many, he said, this is the first century church. Many walk that way. What do they look like, Paul? Well, whose end is destruction? Well, first of all, they put confidence in the flesh. You can recognize them that way. Uh, whose end is destruction? Whose God is their appetite? They're really in, in, interested in everything that can satisfy a worldly appetite. Whose glory is their shame? That's by embracing the world and, and, and their progressivism. That's shame. They think it's glory, but it's shame. And you invite the world in and you celebrate everything the world says is great. You set your mind on earthly things. That's shame. Paul says, or many have gone out like that, still like that. And then he says, I have been in labor, look at verse 27, and in hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, off without food and cold and exposure. And the next one, of course, is one we looked at already. He says, I've been in labors. We saw that last time uh, because he said it numerous times. That's toil resulting in weariness. It's translated labor or labors. It was, wasn't pushed on him. It was his choice. That toil takes everything you have. You're worn out by it. But that's how Paul worked. That's what it's supposed to look like in the church. And you'll see that, uh, as we saw last time, when you're intense about your labor in the church and you work hard, then you're going to create a responsibility and a demand for your time. That's precisely how the Lord wants you to work in the church in your ministry. And that's going to push you to be zealous and diligent and prepare for it. And God is well pleased with that kind of work. Not kind of the wishy-washy, maybe I'll go, maybe I won't, you know, no call, no show, that kinds of thing. Bad habits from the workplace that get imported into the church, see. Paul didn't do any of that. He said, I've been a laborer. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, again, just the Bible explaining the Bible, Paul says, for you recall, brethren, our, and this is our word, labor, and mark this hardship, that's the word for difficulties, we're going to see that in just a minute, from which there are no relief, how working night and day, so he's busy about the ministry and supporting himself and others, and that took some serious effort in order to be able to be available. So he says, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So his work was, was about reconciliation. His work was about the gospel. He wanted to make sure that he did that. And it was very difficult because he had to work other places before he could get there so he could be supplied. And so he had to work with his own hands. We saw that many times in the word of God to provide a living for himself, and, and everyone sometimes who traveled with him, he provided for them as well, and then be about the ministry. And sometimes labor just refers to preaching the gospel, and other times it's toil and labor to the point of exhaustion to get to the point where you can, but both of those qualify. Paul says, I've been in labor, and, then he, and, and he said the same thing in 2, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.8. He says, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. That's pretty sad, isn't it? that he had to do that kind of thing. He, he, the church didn't support him. He refused that support because he didn't want it to be a stumbling block because he knew that it could have been. People were saying, we, we shouldn't have to pay Paul. We shouldn't have to pay him for doing what he's doing. But he says, but with labor, that's our word, and hardship, same set describing his effort. He says, I, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. So Paul is superior to the false apostles, obviously, because he'd endured all the difficulty that he's endured and all the suffering that came along with it and all the beatings and everything that Jesus said would be part of the apostle's life. 
and then he endured working hard in every ministry he was involved with, every church, and he did that voluntarily, and he took that on himself. And these next words, as we come to a close, really, really fly in the face again of uh, the prosperity gospel, as if all the rest didn't. You know, if God's kingdom is here on earth, and that's where everybody's rich and full, then we haven't seen that yet. That's basically the idea Paul's going to bring forth. But uh, look at our next general term. He says, in hardships, that's the noun makthos, a general state of distress and trouble. When you think about that word, when he says in labor, which is labor to the point of exhaustion, then he says hardships, as a general term, it's something that makes people suffer much. It's difficulty, and this is it, from which there's not going to be any relief. It could refer to the struggles of life in a fallen environment, certainly, that affect ministry. Maybe it's a broken body. It could be a difficult time uh, that you're having with relationships or whatever. It, it, but it's difficulties that have no exit, and it probably likely refers in context here to the circumstances that were part of this first century mission environment from which there was no relief. Paul Every time Paul went somewhere, he was going to suffer those hardships. Every time he walked a long way, he was in danger of all the things we just talked about, see? And so that's the idea of hardship, uh, difficulty from which there's not going to be any relief. And, and we know some of our missionaries who are in hard places and serve in hard places, they have difficulties from which there will be no relief. They, uh, you know, my, my father and mother-in-law and my wife and my sister-in-law were in, Mal were in uh, Senegal, West Africa. There were difficulties there on a day-to-day -day basis from which they didn't have any relief. It was part of living there. And they weren't going to be delivered from it. And that's not a bad thing. It's just how it was. But that's the idea when you think about this word. Then it says this, in hardships, and then it says in sleeplessness, many sleepless nights, agropnia, it's, it's translated often watchfulness. And there's a couple ways you can take it, and I think both of them probably apply to Paul. It could be remaining awake because not being able to go to sleep or choosing not to sleep. So the first one could be from anxiety or, or because of external circumstances. It could be, you know, ministering night and day, maybe staying up during the night to pray for a situation or maybe it's working out a plan for ministry and it takes a long time to make that happen and you're not getting any sleep. Maybe it's, it could be dealing with unkind people and you have to work through forgiveness and replace hurt with love and that in, encroaches on your sleep, uh, you know. But it's by choice, either one of those. It could be that he had to work to provide for his physical needs, as we talked about before, his food and his clothing and his shelter. And so he had to work late into the night to make sure that was taken care of. And then in order to accomplish the ministry needs during the day or vice versa. So he's short of sleep, but he still does what he's supposed to do. I'm reminded as we think about that, because it's just so, has a great parallel to the modern church. Again, just like labors and hardships. But Luke chapter 11, verse 5, do you remember Jesus is talking and he tells a parable and he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. Now it's midnight and he wants to borrow some bread. And you're already thinking, Man, I'm in bed. By, I'm, I've been in bed for an hour. This is a perfect illustration. Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey. I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Don't bother me. The door's already been shut. My children are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. So the guy who's in the house, what's he most concerned about? Sleep. He's not going to get enough sleep. That's the problem, isn't it? I'm already clear. I wash my feet. Everybody's in bed. You know, I don't want to get up. I don't want to help you out. And he doesn't get up until his friend presters him enough to get him up. So he doesn't come out looking very good here, does he? And yet this is what happens in ministry in the local church. You know, people don't show up because they're tired. They, they throw that on somebody else. But you know, those people that 
you minister to, they're still going to be here on that day. And they'll still be looking to be ministered to. And, and so the question is, how important is it, this ministry that you do? How important to them is it? And the correct response is really, it's a matter of maturity, right? Because people say, you know, how do you get your message ready every week for Sunday? Well, one of the reasons is, is because I know you're going to be sitting there. And me walking up and saying, hey, professor, would it be okay if I turned this in on Tuesday? It's not going to cut it. Right? So I've told many ministry students that very same thing. Many. You shouldn't be turning anything in late if you're, a ministry, if you're in the ministry and studying for the ministry. Why? Because you're not going to have that option when you're in the ministry. If you have a Bible study due on Wednesday, it's not okay if, it's due on, if you're ready on Friday. You've got to be ready on Wednesday. And so that's the idea, see. And, and how important is the ministry that you do? And how much will it encroach on perhaps some of the things you'd like to do? Because that's called sacrifice in the ministry, and that's a good thing. And you are in very good company when you give at that level, when you labor at that level, see. So this is important. So all you faithful laborers and all you faithful ministers, thank you. I, I know it. You're in good company, and I know that it encroaches on what you'd really like to do. And there are many of you like that. So we see Paul calls on this issue really to show his superiority over the false apostles, to commend himself to them because he loses sleep over them and he does it voluntarily. He desires to do it. He goes without uh, that uh, saying that, you know, it's the right heart attitude, like we saw in Romans chapter 12. Then he says this. He goes, um, in sleeplessness, in hardship, in hunger, which is the noun limos, and that's actually the verb to be in want. Translated as famine. Seven times in the New Testament, hunger three times, scarcity of harvest at least once. Now, this is not the same as when Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians 6, where he was willingly doing without food. Nestisa, that's fasting. Here he's lacking basic necessities. He doesn't have enough to eat. That's the idea. And perhaps when he's traveling, and, and he could also refer to when he was denied regular meals because of the pressures of work, certainly or being far from places where he could get food. It could be possible that Paul has gone without food because he couldn't afford it, because he was working to support his own ministry and those who were with him, because he refused to be a burden to others, as we see in 1 Corinthians 9, 12. So this is Paul. And you can see why we're going through this. I think this is important. I mean, it, it, it perhaps doesn't have the doctrinal impact that our, a passage earlier in 1 Corinthians may have had or, or in, in the last chapter where we can say, okay, what does that mean? And why is that verb important? And we understand something about God's nature. But I think that there's plenty to take away from as we look at this. And I'm not saying we should feel guilty. We live in America. We don't have to do all this. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying, in general, it's good to understand what this actually looks like and what Christianity looks like throughout the world and has looked like throughout the world since its establishment of the church. And the fact that we have uh, some ease here should only give us greater opportunity to what? We're supposed to give the gospel out, and, and there's no real no hindrance for us. So we should be about it, shouldn't we? And we have more than enough, most of us, way more than enough. So we be, should be giving generously? Yes, we should. Right? And if there's ministry to do, shouldn't we be involved with it? Because we can, we can supply for the needs of our family and still take on some big load, can't we? And so I think these are all, all things that I think the Holy Spirit brings in and just kind of points out as, we, as he sees fit. And then he says this. Paul didn't have to go without food, but he did. Then he says, in thirst, often without food, cold, and exposure. And it didn't have to do it, but it's just he put himself in a position 
in a circumstance, if you will, conditions where he was hungry and he had no food to satisfy it. And, and he was cold and exposure is the world for nakedness. So the idea there really is he didn't have sufficient clothing to remedy the exposure that he felt in the wilderness in places when he was traveling. If you remember, he, he sends a letter. He says, when he's in prison, actually in the barracks in Rome, he says, have him bring my cloak and please come before what? Winter, remember? And we think, well, wonder why he threw that in. Well, we can see that now, can't we? Cold, off without food, exposure. Didn't have all that he needed, and he did that for the sake of the ministry. He was more than willing to do it. So here's a man who proved by his character and by his suffering and his endurance, as we close today, I think a few things we can take away that might be appropriate for us to think about. Here's a man who could say in Acts 20, verse 24, he says this, but I do not consider my life as of any account as dear to myself. In other words, I'm not holding on to my life inordinately to the expense of the things that are important. So that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So I'm going to have the squeeze put on me. We saw that earlier, didn't we, in Romans? I'm going to be in jail. I'm going to be in exposure. I'm going to have all those kinds of things happen. I'm going to be in danger of robbers and my countrymen and false believers and all of those things we talked about. But I'm okay with that because my life isn't dearer to me than my ministry. And here's the question for you and for me. Can you put anything in that sentence that's dearer to you than the ministry God has given you? Here's a man who could say in Philippians 3.8, after he talked about his, his education and the things the Lord had allowed him to experience, he says, uh, I count that all rubbish to know Christ. And then he says in verse 8, he says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in comparison or in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And in this verse, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I've known suffering. I've had my things taken away. I'm okay with that because I have Christ, and losing those things hasn't hindered me from growing in Christ. So here's the question for you, beloved. Is there a price you may have to pay that would be too great to gain Christ and grow in him? That's a fair question, isn't it? Is there a price that you would have to pay that would be too great to gain Christ and grow in him? Is there anything you can put in the sentence that's dearer to you than the ministry God has given you? Here's the last one, Philippians 4.12. With this we're going to close. Paul says, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry we just looked at that a minute ago, didn't we? Both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, I know what it is to have nothing. To miss meals and sleep. To be exposed and cold. I'm okay with all of that because I know the secret to every circumstance in which I find myself. Here's the question for you, beloved, and for me. Do you know the secret to living victoriously in whatever circumstance the Lord deems appropriate for you? Are you in whatever circumstance you're in now living victoriously? Can you confidently say 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the opposite statement, without him I can do nothing. We're not talking about a mismanagement of that statement. I can do all things through Christ and claiming some great thing because we know that does not have that context, do we? Don't we? I can bear hunger, difficulties, thirst. I can bear exposure, hardship, constant labors, Paul says. Because I can do those things because God strengthens me, right? That's the, that's the application. So there's the questions for you, beloved. Can you put anything in that sentence that's dearer to you than the ministry God's given you? Is there a price that maybe have to pay that would be too great to gain Christ and grow in him? Do you know the secret to living victoriously in whatever circumstance you're in? And can you confidently say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me? And the opposite statement, without him, I can do nothing. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We give our time to the Lord. We thank you, Father, for an opportunity to be in your word today. We're so grateful that we could be together as a church, that we could be challenged by such a humble man as Paul, one who had been through so much. The more we read about this and we see him not exalting himself any other place and, and humbly coming to the church and beseeching them and, and loving them and exposing his own heart to them and telling them his feelings, even though they gave him such a hard time. But when we see all that he went through and how he does this in a humble manner, not exalting himself, inappropriately. These things are all true. He didn't exaggerate anything he went through. These are things that he had gone through and would still go through. It's just so humbling to see this. But certainly we can come away, Father, and, and perhaps it is your will that we come away with an understanding of perhaps the kinds of attitudes we bring to bear, even in uh, a nation where we have so many blessings. And, and we don't need to be ashamed that we're here. We wouldn't have anything apart from you You've richly given us all things to enjoy, whatever that is. We know so Timothy, you told Timothy that. So it's not that we have too much or somehow we have to peel away all the layers and get down to some certain point where somehow we'll be pleasing to you. It's just simply a matter of faithfulness. It's a matter of answering the important questions as it relates to how our life will be expended. And when we get to the end, we want to live it in such a way that whether we're absent from the body or present here to be pleasing to you, and to be able to answer those questions, is there anything we put in that sentence that uh, would take the place of the importance of growing in you? Is there any price that we'd have to pay that would be too high that we would give up wanting to be your disciple? Are we okay with living in confidence and victory in whatever circumstance you put us in? So, Father, I pray you help us with those answers. We, we don't really know some of them, I don't think. We don't know ourselves well enough because we haven't had to do it. But we'd certainly like to think about that. We'd certainly like to come out in a place where we would be well-pleasing to you in the way we responded. And so I, I, I pray that we'll go through the, that thought process. It's worthy of meditating on those things. So Father, as we go out from here and we think about these kinds of things and we're gonna have some opportunities to witness this week and we'll have some opportunities to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself, help us to do that price is not too high for that. And as we think about our missionaries in other places where they have hardship, which is difficulty that will not end, help us to pray specifically for them. They have names and they have circumstances and we can pray that you will take care of those things. And when we know about persecuted churches in different places, Father, help us to pray specifically because we know what they need. They need food and they need clothing and they need shelter. And determination faithfulness and trust. 
And Father, as we, as we think further out this week, as we travel with, with our student ministry and we go really apart for a little while where we can disciple and move in a relationship more closely with you, we're glad for the fun that we'll have. We're also looking forward to the, the time you will challenge them. And I pray that being an attitude ready, Lord, whatever it is you'd like to teach me, I want to learn it. We might be able to see them grow and become the type of disciples that you can use in this age and in the age they're inheriting as we wait for your son's return. So all these things are on our heart now, Lord. We know that um, you have a plan for us. We desire very much to be in it. Us to be found in your word each day this week that we might know your will, do the things you ask for us, and have the richness uh, that you've planned for us by our relationship with you in that way. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.